I remember, like it was yesterday, my last year of seminary, and I was teaching tennis in Charlotte at the Bill Schillings Tennis Academy, and after I had been there for a couple weeks, um, Bill said, would you lead the stretching and the warm-ups for these, uh, basically the middle school kids, and get them ready for practice, and so that involved leading the stretches, and I have no flexibility, but did that, and then you make them like run some little suicides or things like that, and then at the end, you do a four-court sprint as fast as you humanly can, okay, and then you go to your court. And so um, I've always prided myself to be a rather speedy person, and um, I thought I'm going to show these kids what a college tennis player can do, okay? I was 27 at this point and not a lad, but I said, who can't beat a bunch of middle school punks, right? I can certainly do that. And so um, I probably got a little bit of a head start and said, go, and we all just flew down to court four. I may have been saying some things along the way. And then I noticed like my gait changed a little bit. I got a little off balance, and I mean at full speed. I lost my balance, tripped, landed on my shoulder, but, you know, when adrenaline pours in, I was able to flip up as if nothing ever happened, okay? Tried to play it off as if that was planned, got to the end, okay, and to say that they were laughing at me and um, found that to be very humorous would be an understatement. Um, that was a very humbling experience. Why don't y'all laugh more? What's, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. Um, at any rate, so that was just a little levity. The reason I'm telling you this story, really, is that that day at lunch, uh, we would bring our lunch, and so the players and the pros, we would go eat in this gazebo. So we went to go eat in the gazebo, and one of the other pros that I'd gotten to know and enjoyed was named Kevin. And Kevin sat down by me. He knew I was in seminary. And he said, David, I heard a very interesting sermon this past Sunday, I'd, loved, I'd never heard this particular approach to this uh, Bible passage. Um, you know, I'd like to run it by you. I said, well, tell me, Kevin, what did you hear? He said, the minister said, like concerning the feeding of the 5,000, he said, the minister shared with us the real miracle of the text. I was like, oh. He goes, it wasn't the multiplication of bread and fish. It was the generosity that was elicited from the crowd when this little boy gave out of his poverty. And so what the, the minister uh, or pastor was saying is he didn't think anything supernatural had happened. He thought that the supernatural aspect, in quotes, was the generosity. So it'd be like in first century, um, Allison and Graham, let's just say, they're ancient Jews in the first century. They're there listening to the teachings of Jesus. Allison, who is so um, gracious and kind and concerned for the needs of others, when Allison sees the little boy giving out of his poverty, she turns around to, to Graham, who had these, like, these long robes on and whatnot, his outer garments. She hit that, and then what Graham had been hiding like fell out on the ground, okay? And that that happened in the whole audience, and so the miracle was the generosity of the people as they were moved to give. Okay, so 
I didn't know exactly how to respond in the moment. I really can't remember how I responded. But um, that's not an uncommon view today. If you were to take a a Bible class or a, a New Testament class at one of the top universities in the country, that would be a standard view. <clears throat> the view would be um, that uh, this passage clearly speaks about a miracle of Jesus. And so within this understanding, they would say, you know, Jesus, supernatural is not true. Jesus really didn't perform any miracles. And over time, these stories, these traditions were embellished over time until they were ultimately written down. And so if you can follow what the minister was saying is, in its early form, Jesus, you know, was a competent preacher, lots of people there, and out of the generosity they gave, and that that story had been embellished over the years. Are you with me? Can you follow what their understanding is? Okay, in their mind they're thinking, how how does the New Testament talk about miracles when miracles can't happen? Oh, it's slow embellishment. Okay, and I'm not trying to be critical, I'm just trying to describe. Here's a question. I think there are some clues in the text that indicate that every word and every detail of the text actually happened as written. That there are some subtle indicators that the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 was communicated by someone who was there an eyewitness who was recording precisely what he saw, okay? So I'm gonna frame the question, leave you with a cliffhanger, and then we'll go to our text, okay? If you were going to embellish this story, okay? If over time, it's like the fish story that started out, you caught like, you know, Rob Mowry catches a small fish, and then in like five years at the Mowry table, it's like a 20-pound whopper, okay? That... So if you are trying to embellish this story and you have Jesus there and you're going to tell a story that deals with food, with bread and money, which of the disciples would you have beside Jesus for him to ask, where can we find bread? If you're going to tell a story that deals with money and bread, which disciple would you put beside Jesus and ask this person where we can find food? You might think, who would be first? Who was the, maybe the accountant of the group? Maybe Matthew, okay? Who had control of the purse? Judas, okay? Who was maybe the most famous person there who spent a lifetime catching fish? Peter. So if you're trying to embellish a story and make it more understandable or persuadable, you would have Jesus ask the accountant Matthew or the guy with the purse strings Judas or the most famous fisherman. That's not who Jesus asked. Jesus asked Philip, a virtually anonymous disciple, virtually unknown Philip. Why would he ask Philip where we can find bread? Well, hopefully by the end you'll see. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Okay, we're in John chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 25, and then there is a panel 7. I want to prepare you for that, but I think you'll enjoy 
when we get there. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus said this to Philip to test him, for he, Jesus, he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, well, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? They couldn't even make a dent in this. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered, gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, in other words, when they internalized the magnitude of this miracle, when they saw the sign that Jesus had done, they, the crowd, the people, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Then they doubled down, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to what? To make him king. He's not only a prophet, they want to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. All right, so I'm going to ask you today to be a very observant reader with me. Okay, I want to set the context. Jesus, as we have seen, he's been doing miracles. He has been teaching with authority. Crowds and crowds have swelled up around him. He's healing parents, children, and older people. He's healing paralytics. He's doing amazing things. And so there's large, large crowds that are coming around him. Okay, look with me at verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. He was healing them. Go to verse 4. Now the Passover 
The feast of the Jews was at hand. Now that's interesting um, that he says crowds following him. But they're in northern Israel. They're not in Jerusalem. But he says it's the Passover. Remember that. It's Passover time, which means it's March or April. We'll come back to that as well. Look at verses 5 through 7. Lifting up his eyes, he realized Jesus saw that a large crowd was coming toward him. Verse 5. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He had said this to test him. For Jesus knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Okay. The interpretive key to the whole thing comes in the words, he said this to Philip to what? To test him. Basically, to ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? You have seen the signs that I have performed. You've heard my preaching ministry. Who do you think that I am? Philip really doesn't get it. He's a little bit oblivious to what Jesus is doing. And so Philip answers his question. He answers his question like 200 denarii couldn't even feed these people. Okay, 200 denarii in today's currency could be as much as $30,000. So imagine, you are itinerant preachers, which means you have this roving teaching ministry. You are living hand to mouth. These people could not rub two nickels together. And Philip tells you that it would cost $30,000 for one meal. In other words, there is no way that we have the resources or the money to feed this crowd, okay? Um, verses 8 through 10. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. So let's, let's, okay, so what does John mean when he says there are 5,000 in number? What would that number actually equate to? 5,000 of what does the text say? Men. Okay, so if Jesus is healing the sick, if he's teaching with authority, if paralytics are being healed, children are being healed, who do you think was most likely there as well? The wives and children. There could have been as many as 15,000 people. So the feeding of the 5,000 is more likely the feeding of the 15,000. And it would have cost $30,000 to feed these people. It's just a setup of how absolutely impossible this situation is. And this boy, what does he have? This boy has five barley loaves and two fish. Why does John share those details? Because that was the most meager portion in their context. Like a wealthy person would have maybe had cheese, maybe would have had lamb, 
or a higher quality of bread. So this was the most meager meal of a poor person. That is the setup. Okay? So let's kind of put this all together briefly. Verse 6, Jesus said this to test Philip, for he knew what he was going to do. Okay, then he does the miracle. What's the response of the people in verse 14? When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, quote, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. The crowd understands the enormity and the magnitude of the miracle. So they are alluding back to Deuteronomy 18.15. Because in the Old Testament, the Old Testament predicts that a prophet would come who would speak like Moses and would answer the prayers of the people. What the crowd is saying when Jesus did this miracle is, that prophet is here. He's here with us right now. That's why they did what they did in verse 15. They were about to come and take him by force to do what? To make him the king. So in response to this amazing miracle, they view him as the prophet. They want to forcibly make him king. He's the fulfillment of all their hopes and aspirations. The sign did its work. And then guess what happens? John moves on to another story. Like, what? How can you just move on to another story? What did we learn last week? Sometimes it was a literary technique the writers would use in order to keep the interest of the people like I'm trying to do now. Let's keep your interest so we stay alert. Okay. Story A would be the first story the author would use. Then he would interrupt story A in the middle of it, insert story B, totally different story, and then come back to story A. Okay, so last week we were in the book of Mark. What did we call that? A Mark and sandwich, where the A story is the bread, then you get the meat in the middle, the bread on the bottom. We have that exact same thing here. All right, so let's go to verse 16. Story A, the feeding of the 5,000, gets interrupted with story B, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad, that's an understatement, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And almost as quickly as story B comes, what happens? What do you think? We go back to story A, okay? Go to panel seven. So that was basically it with Jesus walking on water. Now we're back on the other side of the lake and we're going to go back to story A. So when they, I'm in verse 25, John 6, when they, meaning the crowd, the crowds who had witnessed 
the feeding of the, you know, 15, 20,000 people, they were following him, obviously. They were desperate to be in his company. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Because they didn't know how he got there. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you who are seeking me. Not because you saw the signs. Like you're not, you're not interested in me because of these spiritual things I do and say, no. You're interested in me. You want to find me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Okay, in other words, I, I felt... I met your felt needs. You're here because you're hungry, not because you're spiritually hungry. Verse 27. Then he says this. He challenges them. Do not work for the food that perishes. Like, don't just focus on the bread and the fish, but actually for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite self-designation, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, now this is a huge statement, for on him... God the Father has set his seal. What was he saying there? God the Father has set on him, meaning myself, his seal. What was he saying? He was saying, I am the Messiah. I'm everything that miracle pointed to. Okay? And then look what they say. It's at, it, it totally follows. Then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You know, what is this work you want us to do? Now, this is fascinating, and this is completely counterintuitive. It's kind of an oxymor oxymoron. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that what? That you, which I think building habitat houses is phenomenal. We should be doing that. Is that what? Jesus tells them it is to do the work of God, to do your quiet times, to witness to people, to read your Bible copiously. Is that what Jesus says? No. Jesus said, this is the work of God. This is what you need to be focused on, that you believe in him whom God the Father has sent. What's the work that we are called to do? To believe, to trust to honor him, to love him, but at its core, to trust that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. So they're following the argument. Look what they say in verse 30, because he knows, or I'm sorry, the crowd knows that he's asking for them to view him as Messiah, to worship him, to trust him. Look what they say, which on the surface doesn't seem to make sense. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you do perform? Now, why is that confusing on the surface? If you're still tracking and paying attention. Why does that seem confusing? Why were they following him to the other side of the lake all night? Because of the signs he had been doing. He just fed 15,000 people. What do you want from me? Okay, Notice what they say in verse 31. You've got to know a little bit about the Old Testament to realize what's happening. They say, well, Jesus, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, what you just did, 
feeding the 5,000, giving them bread. Well, that's nothing different than happened in the Old Testament. God, through Moses, gave them manna from heaven. You're going to have to one-up that if you want us to believe that you are the Messiah. The miracle you just performed, that's old news kind of thing. What are you going to do for us now? You're making quite an ask, okay? Let's look at the text. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. Like, don't think, don't compare me to Moses. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven for, now this is kind of a mind blower, all that manna, all that provision in the Old Testament, all of that was just pointing ahead to this moment, to me. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. What is that true bread from heaven? For the true bread of God is he, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Whoa, they said to him in verse 34, sir, see, they still don't quite get it. Sir, they're thinking literally, give us this bread always. One of the most important verses in the entire Bible, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. One of the many I am statements in John. Jesus is interpreting them this for them. When he says, I am the bread of life, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is hearkening back to the burning bush. You all know this. In the burning bush, Moses wanted to know, who is it, what's your name so that I can tell my people who is sending us? God responds to Moses with what? What was the name of God? I am. You tell the Jews, I am is sending you and saying these things. Jesus is saying, I am. I am God, I am the bread of life, I am life itself. Did you notice that in this passage, in the meat, the meat of this sandwich, Jesus did do a much greater miracle than Moses did in the Old Testament. He didn't do it in front of everyone, he did it in front of his disciples. Okay, when Jesus walks on the water and he perceives that his disciples are afraid, what does Jesus say? What does the text say? To calm their fears, to identify himself. He says, don't worry, it is I. You know what those words are in the Greek? Ego a me, I am. Don't worry, I am is here. Don't worry, not only can I feed 5,000 or 15,000, I have power over nature itself. I am the God of the created order. He can walk on water. He can calm the storm at his command. No one in the Old Testament could do anything like that. This is altogether something new. What's the point? If I can feed 15,000, if I can walk on water and command nature, 
then you can trust me with your life. You can give me your entire life and trust me to be a steward with your life. You're worried about physical bread and what you're going to eat tomorrow. That's all well and good, but I'm the bread of life. You can't survive if you don't rely on me. That's what he's saying. That's amazing. Now, the last thing I want to say to wrap this up, I'll give you a bonus next week. If you can track what I'm saying here at the end, it's going to go back to Philip at the very beginning. It's going to go back to the Passover. It's going to go back to kind of the incidental detail that John gives about the place where the feeding happened. What did John say about that place? Did you, did you remember kind of an interesting descriptor or description he, when he talks about the place? What did he say? Remember, we had to read. A lot of grass there. There was, quote, much grass in that place. Well, isn't that interesting? Passover time is March or April immediately after the rains of winter. March or April would be the time when massive amounts of grass would be in those kinds of places. Who would know that? That's just an incidental detail. I'll tell you who would know that. Someone who was there. You know, sometimes you're a part of an event And you may not even remember the main point. There was something, though, about that experience that you'll never forget. Maybe a smell, maybe something that happened. John, so many years later, was remembering, man, on that day, there was just a a lot of grass. That's interesting. Also, we're going to land the plane. Okay. I was going to say you'll get a jewel in your crown in heaven, but that would not be good for me to say. If you remember this, okay? So stick with me as I come down. Remember I asked at the beginning. Why in the world, do you know, why in the world Jesus would ask an obscure disciple like Philip where to find bread? If you're embellishing a story, it would be Matthew or Judas or maybe Peter. Why did Jesus ask Philip? Okay. If you go to the book of Luke, chapter 9. Luke also chronicles the feeding of the 5,000. And Luke inserts a detail that's not found here. Luke tells you that the feeding of the 5,000 happened near Bethsaida. Okay? Jesus asks Peter, where can we find bread? Luke tells us this miracle happens in Bethsaida. Later in John, chapter 12, verse 21, guess what we find out about Philip? Guess what we find out? Philip's from Bethsaida. Why in the world would Jesus ask Philip, an obscure disciple, where to find bread? It's because Philip was from Bethsaida. And when stories like that, when these independent sources like John and Luke, when they interlock in these ways that are like, um, that are, they're not collaborated on, when they interlock like this, eyewitness testimonies like this, what does this mean about the story? It's authentic. It's true. There's no embellishment here. These stories dovetail together. There was green grass in the place. He asked Philip, because that's where Philip's from. I promise you, that's mind-blowing. That's incredible. Beloved, these things actually happened. Jesus of Nazareth miraculously fed 15,000 people 
to prove the point that he is the bread of life. He is life. Jesus walked on water to say, if I can do that, I can care for you. I can provide for you. He's saying Moses' miracle couldn't give you life, but I can. You know why? I am. I am. I am very God, a very God, and I love you. Look with me and we'll end with this, the confession of faith. This is what that amazing God in Christ Jesus says to all of us this very day. On panel two, we'll end with this. This is what Jesus came to communicate. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for these amazing eyewitness recountings of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. It is, we can't even begin to fathom how Jesus, the Son of Man, walked on water, calmed a storm, fed thousands of people from two meager fish and five barley loaves of bread. And if you can do that, of course, you can feed us spiritually. Lord Jesus, help us to repent of of the views that we have of you because whatever view we have of you, Lord Jesus, it's too small. It's not big enough. As we read your word, as we learn more about who you are and what you've done, help our love for you to grow, help our appreciation of you to magnify. Lord, help us to believe and know that in Christ Jesus, you are the great I am. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus.